0: Your Bible's with me, if you will, to 1 John chapter 3. We'll be finishing up chapter 3 today. And it finishes up really a section that begins at the end of chapter 2. Talking about us being children of God. And about our having confidence in not shrinking back at his coming. And today, at the end of this section... He talks about our confidence once again before God, particularly in prayer. And this section is not just closing the verses today, verses 19 through 24, not just closing this section of chapter 3, but really they're summarizing the whole first three chapters. In these first three chapters, we've had a lot of tests. Tests of the faith. Are you in the faith? Do you know God? Are you his child? These tests were not there just to beat up the bad guys, although there's some of that going on as he says, you've given us these things that we might know those who are trying to deceive us, but they're there for us to give us assurance of our salvation. And that's really the focus of this last section, that assurance of salvation that he's been working towards through these three sections. Not the presumption of salvation that the Jews had in Jesus' day, but an assurance that comes from having examined ourselves according to really the tests that he has given and seeing that we are in the Lord and that we have his spirit in us. So I want to start reading at verse 28 of chapter 2 again. And I'll read through the end of 3 for the last time. As we'll be moving on to a new thought in chapter 4, Lord willing, next week. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See that what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning, and no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him nor known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For Whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. by the Spirit whom he has given us. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the encouragements here in 1 John, and we ask, Lord, your grace to us as we seek to unravel and understand these things, encourage our hearts, lift us up, convict us of the things we need to change, and reassure us of your love for us and of our faith. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. so really, one of the purposes of the tests of the first three chapters, as I said earlier, is to help reassure our hearts, to help give us that assurance, confidence in our faith, our salvation. In verse nineteen of our the beginning of our section today, he says, "By this we know that we are of the truth." He's actually connecting it to verse eighteen. Now, it's funny, in my ESV, it makes the paragraph break at verse 19. But in my Greek text, it makes the paragraph break at verse 18, which is probably where it belongs. It's hard to break that as a paragraph because the two sections flow together so nicely. But what he's talking about in verse 19, the truth is referring back to the previous passage. Let us not love in word or talk, but indeed. And in truth, many people will judge themselves based on the promises they make, the good intentions they have in their heart, by what they want others to see in them. But they but they don't always follow through, because there's a price to be paid. And how many times have we started something and ended up not finishing because we didn't count the cost? Jesus mocks the the one who you know who's going to go build a tower and not see if he has enough to finish it. Who's going to march off to war and not first check to make sure he has enough men to win? You know, we sometimes boast and then don't finish, don't do. Uh, we come up with a lot of good excuses. We say, oh, we, you know, we should all give to the poor because God wants that. But I don't really have enough surplus to be able to afford that. So the government should give to the poor. Pass the buck. We need more welfare, more universal basic income, more mandatory free programs. Somebody else needs to make the sacrifice that I want. I've actually heard people in the church say, well, you know, my company requires me to give to the United Way. If I don't give to the United Way, I'm not promotable. And so I've given my money to the United Way. I don't need to give to the church for its programs. I gave it the office. Now, these mega NGOs, first of all, they're, they're not giving to God's people. They're not supporting and furthering God's kingdom. Even the ones that are ostensibly Christian. Uh, most of them give most of the money to themselves. Uh, some of them give as little as 10% to what the cause Second, as we saw last week, those forms of giving are not really biblical. Yeah, if a man won't work, he won't eat. Second Thessalonians 3.10. We, we need to be doing it the right way, not passing it off to someone else. We need to do it. And it's really, it's not also just about money. It's about our time. God's people have many needs. Some people are able to help with physical work, some administrative help, some... Emotional and moral support. There are many ways we help people. We're told in Galatians 6, 2-5 to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks he's someone when he's nothing, he's deceiving himself. But let each test his own work and then he will have reason to boast in himself alone and not in his neighbors. For each will bear his own load. You know, we all have a burden to bear and we should be bearing it, but bearing each other's burdens as well. Not boasting in things we're not doing, but taking care of each other. And you know, it's a small church and this church does that very well. But it's something to keep in mind that that's part of. It's not about money always. It's about supporting each other and caring for each other and building each other up and seeing to each other's needs. If we love God's people, we should love them tangibly, in a real way, not just in word, in thought, in promise, but in truth. Because if we say, yes, yes, I love you, yes, yes, you know, go and be fed and be warm and be well fed and do nothing, it's hypocrisy. And that's what he's driving at here. Brotherly love needs to be in truth, not in hypocrisy. And brotherly love is one of his tests of true Christian character, and not just his alone, but of Christ's. Remember we read in John 13, 34 and 35, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you should love one another. By this people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. It's new in the sense that now we have seen Christ willing to lay down his life for us, And as John has said, we should then be willing to lay down our life for our brothers. In other words, make sacrifice. Back in chapter 2 of 1 John, verse 7 and 11, John said, Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment, which is true in him because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever said he is in the light yet hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. In him there is no cause for stumbling. Whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going. Because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Loving the brothers, loving God's children is one of the key tests. And we, we spoke more about that last time. How... You know, if we love God, we love the image of God, while the image of God is in His children, we should see the image of God in His children and love them because they are belonging to Him. They are His, and we can show our love for God, whom we don't see by loving His children, whom we do see, and that love, like Christ should be sacrificial where needed. So he's continuing really with this thought of a sacrificial love for God's children. And that's the basis then of a, the reassurance that he's bringing in in this passage. We need that reassurance because our ha- hearts absolutely do condemn us. Now, I've met not plenty of people who say, oh, my conscience is clear. I never have a problem with a guilty conscience, I'm good. Well, our conscience condemns us because of our sin. Your heart doesn't condemn you, I say. You don't have pangs of guilt. You don't feel the weight of your sin. We read the passage already this morning in our worship, but 1 John 1, 8 through 10. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If you have sin, shouldn't you feel guilt? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of our sins. And cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if we say we have not sinned, we make him to be a liar and his truth is not in us. You know, we feel the pangs of guilt because we have sin in our life. We have sin in our heart. We have sin in our actions. Even when we start off with the best of intentions, Right? we don't fulfill it all the time. There's a price to be paid. We stumble. We we struggle. It doesn't always work out as we want. You know, he's not saying this is some, if by chance the one in a million events should occur that you. No. It's normal and not rare that the Christian feels the weight of their sin, especially the weight of those habitual sins that we've struggled with for many years but for all sin, for any sin. It's a common occurrence. Paul talks about this, he says in Romans 2.12-16, through 16, For all who have sinned apart from the law shall perish apart from the law, but all who have sinned by, under the law ju- will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For the Gentiles who do not have a law By nature, do what the law requires, and they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written in their hearts, and their consciences also bear witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse and excuse them. On the day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secret of men by Christ Jesus. So even the Gentiles who don't know what is right and wrong according to the scriptures, they know from their conscience what is right and wrong and they have conflicting thoughts. They have their conscience accusing them and their conscience acquitting them when others accuse them. And because the law of God is written in our hearts if we are believers. And our heart will condemn us for our sin but as our heart Perfect in condemning and not condemning when it's supposed to? Well, we all know that it sometimes overlooks our sin. The heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. Who can know it? (coughs) But does it ever go the other way? Do we ever have pangs of guilt on something we're innocent on? And it's not going to be always right. Sometimes we feel guilty about things we can't do or shouldn't do. I I shared last time the story about that family who co-signed for a loan for another Christian. Christian in a loose sense in that term since they skipped out of town without paying it back. Uh, They felt guilty sometimes for not helping others. I'm trying to save up enough money to repair the roof on my house. But my neighbor knows, my Christian neighbor knows I have $100. I need 150 to fix the roof. And they need food. And they're coming by knocking on the door and wanting my money. You know, what do I do? They need this and that. And sometimes they have pangs of guilt. Am I being stingy and cruel by not sharing equally with them? And their culture and scriptures don't always mesh perfectly, so they have guilty feelings about doing what might be okay. Uh, other times we have guilty feelings because, you know, we see the guy with the, the two kids sitting at the entrance to McDonald's begging for money. We think, oh, those poor kids, oh, that man, he needs money, he needs food. But we've we've talked about it before, some of those people, they have a rented property, they have their food paid, their rent paid, they have their drugs paid, their booze paid, all by the donations they collect. You know, is it good to help them or bad? We feel guilty seeing especially the children, which is why the children are there, by the way, to inspire guilt in people and get their money. But we have those pangs of guilt if we don't help. But are they always right? You know, our conscience can get confused as we don't know what we should do, or we believe we know what we should do, but then we feel bad about doing it because it makes other people unhappy, it makes them suffer, it makes them angry or bitter or resentful. it makes us uncomfortable. You now other times we know what God wants from scripture. But the result makes us feel uncomfortable. We can appeal to God at that time for our comfort. Pray what we've done, why we've done it. They may be sorrowful. They may despise us. We may think we did right, but we're not sure. We do the best we can. We appeal to God. He knows all things, He knows our conscience, He knows what we've done. He knows why we've done it. He knows the secret counsel of our heart, our true motives. He knows everything. And believe it or not, God can be more merciful than our own heart. And sometimes we beat ourselves up and torment ourselves when it's not necessary. Of course, most of the time when we're beating ourselves up and tormenting ourselves, we know it's just. Right? We, we understand that. At such times, we need to remember what John said back in, first, in chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. At that time, you know, our heart and the Holy Spirit have brought us conviction. Right? Our, our, our conscience is troubled and brought us to then repentance, confessing our sins to God, seeking his forgiveness. And God's promise of pardon and cleansing through the blood of Christ can then bring peace to our troubled hearts. You know you don't need to beat yourself up year after year. I remember a woman I knew years ago. she was a Christian. Before she became a Christian, she hadn't lived the best of lives. And when right to Life Sunday came about, and there was going to be a special message. She was crying. And I could immediately guess what had happened. And sure enough, she confessed to me that 20 years ago, she had had an abortion. And I said, have you repented of it? Yes. You acknowledge it's sin. You've repented. Has God forgiven you? Yes. Don't need to keep tormenting yourself. If God has forgiven you your sin, who are you to punish you for the sin God has already forgiven? If we have repentance, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. We don't need to relive the guilt of our sins for the rest of our life if we have him. Now, there are times where the consequence for the sin... Maybe with us for the rest of our life. Not just in our own bodies, but in, in others. And if you're married and your husband or your children are upset that you had an abortion, it may be something that haunts you forever. But God, if God has forgiven you, your conscience should be cleared by that. And you should be able to move on and continue with your life. Your conscience, having witnessed before, Convicted you of your sin. Brought you to repentance before God. God knowing all things. Having condemned us. Has now forgiven us. We can take comfort in his knowledge. That he understands all things. He knows all things. And he has brought us to the repentance and forgiveness. Paul says in Romans 8.26. That the spirit can help us in our weakness. We don't know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes with groanings too deep for words. I think this is the real meaning of that, where we know we're troubled with our conscience. We should be okay. We should have dealt with it. We think we're good. God searches the heart, and he knows the mind of the Spirit, and the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. You know, the Spirit is there within the believer. And has brought us that conviction and brought us that repentance and brought us to forgiveness in Christ. And that's why we should be able to move on. Our heart, having been tested, having been cleansed by repentance and forgiveness, should be at rest. It should give us confidence then to go before God. And that's where he moves in the next two verses, 21 and 22. Confidence that stems from a non-condemning heart. Now, we read Job today. Job insisted on his innocence. He was not suffering, he said, because of some great sin, where his so-called friends were saying, clearly you're guilty of great sin, and that's why you're suffering. And then they proceeded to make up the sins he might be guilty of and accuse him of them. And he insisted he was going to keep his integrity. And he said, you know, his heart was innocent, that he, was not, you know, that he was not convicted, not, not upset about what his life had brought about. That he was confident before God. And he says elsewhere, basically, if God judges man for his sins, no one can stand. I mean, he acknowledged he had sins. Asked, why are you bringing the consequences of the sin of my youth when he wasn't as good a man? You know, why am I having to live the consequence for them now? But his heart did not trouble him with guilt because he had been forgiven his sins and because he had lived rightly before God. Now, he's not suggesting, John's not suggesting here that we should sear our conscience, as many do, that we should feel no guilt, as the modern psychology world says. I think I've handled that and that we must be addressing our guilt In dealing with our guilt, and the way we address and deal with our guilt is to confess our sin, to repent of our sin, if necessary to make right for our sin, and to trust that God has forgiven us for our sin. Those who have seared their conscience are seen throughout scripture and condemned. Uh, One of the places is in Jeremiah 6.15. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? Speaking of the leaders of Israel. No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. At that time, I will punish them and they shall be overthrown, says the Lord. Those people who do not know how to blush, who have no shame, who feel no guilt, that's not who he's talking to. He's talking to the believer who has the Holy Spirit within them who convicts them of their sin. What we're talking about here is those who have dealt with their sin And are living a right life before God. And whose conscience then is clear. Whose heart is not attacking them. For their sin. For their wrongdoing. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4.4. That I am not aware of anything against myself. He's saying I don't know of any sin that I need to deal with. But he says I am not thereby acquitted. For it is the Lord who judges me. His conscience was clear at that point in time, but he wasn't saying, that doesn't mean I'm really innocent. The Lord will judge me. And we need to heed his admonition to examine ourselves, 2 Corinthians 3.5. Examine ourselves to see whether in your faith test yourselves or do not realize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you, unless, of course, you fail to meet the test. And that's really the same test John is talking about, the abiding in Christ, the abiding in him, should have a result, the result being that we pass these tests, and one of them being the test of faith, the test of obedience, the test of love for God, love for the brother, all of those tests. And so we should be testing ourselves. And if we have dealt vigorously with our sins, we can then have great confidence in the blood of Christ, which cleanses us from all our sin, as we just read in First uh, John one seven. And then our heart should be able to be at peace. And as the author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 4:16, we can draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. And that's really what John has in mind here as he's talking about being able to come to the Lord in prayer. So this is then that great promise of prayer, that supreme blessing and promise. And we see the same one Jesus makes in John 14:14, 14, 14. Ask anything in my name and I will do it. That promise here is a great promise to the struggling Christian. One of the themes we see throughout 1 John is, you know, we are living a faithful life in a very hostile world. In a world that doesn't know God, a world that opposes God, a world that opposes us and doesn't know us because it doesn't know God. We're going to have trials and troubles and tribulations and suffering. And here he is saying that God will take care of you. That we ask whatever we need and we will receive it from him. Now, there are some basic requirements, some of them given right here. Verse 23 and 24 makes it clear that we have to be abiding in Christ and Christ abiding in us. We have to be a believer. We have to have faith. Uh, John in his letter is alluding back to the gospel in John 15 where Jesus makes that great uh, comparison between the vine and the branches of of our being abiding in Christ. It says in chapter 15, verse 7 and following, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So this is a promise only to the believer and the believer who is in Christ, not one who is strayed away from God. God's ears are closed to the prayers of the wicked and of the apostate until they've repented and returned said, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. As the Father loved me, so also I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, I will, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And so there's, it's all linked together. The, the abiding in Christ means to be living a godly life in Christ Jesus, in faith, in knowledge of him. And that is not something that can be separated from his answer to prayer. Without that, there's no hope of answer to prayer. And our prayers need to be in faith. We've talked about this before when we went through James. James chapter 1, verse 6 to 8. Let him ask in faith with no doubting, for whoever doubts is like a wave of the sea tossed to and fro by the wind. That person must not believe him. Well, let's not supposed that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded, unstable in all his ways. The doubting there was not doubting you get what you want, but I think more doubting God. We don't automatically then get what we want. God is supreme and his plan is supreme. Uh, Some people want to misrepresent and misinterpret this to mean God has promised and therefore whatever I pray, I get. (laughs) And we we chuckle at that. Uh, We're told that in Ephesians 1.11 that we have an inheritance having predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. God has a plan and he's working out that plan. And that plan is according to his will And our prayer needs to be according to his will if it's going to be answered. And John teaches us this later in his letter in 1 John chapter 5. Lord willing, we'll get there eventually. But in 1 John chapter 5, verse 14 and 15, and this is the confidence we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And we know that if he hears us, whatever we ask, We know that we have received what we have asked of him. And this is important because we remember Christ's prayer in the garden of Gethsemane. He was asking for something good and right and holy. If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Why should he, the son of God, be murdered by the godless? And yet he said, not my will, but your will be done. His prayer was not answered, not because he was faithless, not because he didn't belong to God, not because he didn't have enough faith, not because he doubted, but because God's plan was for him to die. And sometimes God's will is different than what we ask. And we just need to keep in mind that we may not get what we want, what we think we need, what we desire. Many people praying to God for deliverance, have been martyred over the years because that was God's plan for their life, for his glory, for his kingdom, and for their good. And that happens. So we need to keep that in mind. There are those, and we've mentioned this before, who wrestle and corrupt this beautiful promise of God to make evil out of it. The name it and claim it cults come to mind. And yes, I consider those people to be a different religion from me. They make God subservient to the winds of sinful, corrupt man. They say, oh, you know, we can all imagine if you pray to kill my enemy, my rival, the one who succeeds where I fail, the one who has what I don't have, the one who has joy where I have bitterness. We think nobody's, God's not going to do that. But give me a million dollars. Give me a nice house. Give me a pleasant job. Give me a useful spouse, a submissive wife, obedient children. Give me the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life. If we pray that, does God do? Well, we just read, do not love the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. If you're praying for the things of the world, the love of the Father is probably not in you. Well, I'm praying for excess. Give us this day our daily bread is a good prayer. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eye, this is the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. James told us that if that, that we ask and do not receive because we ask wrongly to spend it on our passions. You know, getting what we want, it, there are, Probably hundreds of self-help books in the Christian bookstore. How to get what you want from God. How to get your prayer answered. Uh, I remember for a while the prayer of Janbaz was a popular Jabez. book. Huh? Jabez. Jabez. Yes, I forget which person it was even. Uh, if you answer, if you pray this prayer this way, God will have to give you what you want. Uh, it's not the way it is. But what are we promised? That we he will take care of us. That we are his children. We are his beloved children of God. And that he will take care of our needs. And he will give us what we need. And we need to ask. And we can do that because we are walking with him. And we can have confidence in that because we please him. Now, we know Jesus pleased his father. John 4.34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. 8.29, he sent me, is with me, and I'm not left alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Jesus always pleased his father, as he's talking about in our passage. And we are also called then to please God. Everyone who hears the words of mine, Matthew seven twenty four and following, and does them is like a wise man who built his house upon the rock. Uh, the obedience and the pleasing of God and the love of God are all intricately connected. You cannot please God by being disobedient. The so-called lordship salvation people who say you can accept Jesus as your savior and not as your lord should not expect to be saved let alone get answer to their prayer. Uh, Anyone who hears the words of mine and does them is like a wise man who built his house upon a rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the wind blew and beat upon that house and it did not fall because it was founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them is like the foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rains came and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house, and great was it fall. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, John 14:15. And the one who loves me is the one who keeps my commandment, and he will be loved by my Father, and I will manifest myself to him, John 14:21. Right, we are called upon to be pleasing to God and that is part of our relationship with him if we are not pleasing to him if we are turning back to our sins then we need not <coughs> anticipate getting the answers to prayer now again some twist and pervert this to to make it say that oh if we are pleasing to god god owes us and has to pay us back by doing what we've asked paul says in romans 11:35 and 36 Who has given a gift to him that he must be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. The cattle of a thousand hills belong to him. What gift do we have? Uh, We don't do that. That's absurd. We've discussed it in a few times looking through this book. That's putting the cart before the horse. It's a matter of cause and effect. Our works show that we belong to God. Our works show that we are right with God, not cause God to obey us. That's just crazy. It's not do what God wants, bind God to obey you in in your prayers, but rather be confident that God will hear your prayers because you're obeying him from the heart and that shows that you are one of his children. And it's a very different turnaround. And you're not going to have much confidence, and you're not going to have much joy in your life if you think that you're binding God. Understand, and we should be careful to understand that our obedience shows our love and our belonging, and our walk, and gives us some confidence that we are with Him. And He promises us Matthew 6:31 and following. That we should not be anxious. What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? The Gentiles seek after these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and these things will be added to you. Now, if we are seeking God by being obedient, by living for him, by all of these tests, we are showing ourselves that, yes, that is how I walk with God. That is how I glorify God. That is how I know God. Then we can, then we are really seeking the things of God, the kingdom of God, and His righteousness, and he, then we can be confident that He will take care of those things. And He promised again in Matthew 19:29 and following that everyone who had left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for His sake will receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. What a great promise. But of course, it begs the question, how do we know if we are pleasing God? Well, not through worldly means. Our confidence cannot come from wishy-washy feelings. Oh, I know I've made the right choice because I've looked at my heart and my heart is at peace. My heart desires this. I- I've heard that so many times. You no, know, your heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. You know, John doesn't say, look to your heart and see if you have peace. Look to your heart and see if it's what you truly desire. He says, look to the word and see if you're doing what God says. And so wishy-washy feelings are not very good. Uh, Others say, well, you know, I have success and that proves that God is with me. You know, look at Job and Abraham and Solomon. Which of the famous billionaires today, who's very successful, has God with him, do you think? Please tell me. Apple's guy, Microsoft's guy, big finance guys who manipulate the stock market. No, 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 no. Success isn't always a way to tell. Others, you know, they think it's my fiat. I have declared myself to be right with God. And therefore I am right with God. No, that's why we have all these tests in First John to show us if we are right with God. Where does our confidence come from? Well, the first and primary commandment he gives here in verse 23 and 24 is what? He's mentioned it several times. Here it's believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. In chapter 2, verse 22, confess that Jesus is the Christ. Verse 23, confess the son. In chapter 4, confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Uh, his point is that we, we confess, believe in, have confidence in the biblical Jesus Christ. Not the Jesus of men's fantasies. Not the Jesus that serves me It meets my needs. Uh, I remember years ago when I first heard that they were making black Jesus dolls for black children so that they could have the Jesus they needed. And there's just so many things wrong with that. Jesus wasn't white either. Don't get the wrong idea. He was a Jew. But we don't want the God who serves us we need to confess the one true living God. Jesus says in John 6:29, the work of God is that you believe in him whom he has sent. And John said already, whoever says I know him, 1 John 2, 4 through 6, but does not keep his commandment is a liar and the truth is not in him. Whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the way in which he walked. You know, we know him, we confess him, but that is shown to be true by our obedience to him in doing what he did and what he said, walking as he walked. Interestingly, while the verb is singular, the commandment, confessing Christ, he attaches to it brotherly love directly. He doesn't allow those two to be separated here. And I think the reason for this is explained a little later in First John in chapter 4, starting at verse 19. He says, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, Whoever loves God must also love his brother. And so the two are inseparable. If we love God, we love His our brother. And if we believe in God, if we love God, we're believing in him, we're worshiping him, we're acknowledging him as our Lord, our master, our savior. And we're doing what he requires. And one of the things he requires is that we love his children because his children bear his image. And how can we love what of him we see in our brother? Or how can we not love what we see of him in our brother and claim we love him when we can't see? And so the, the two are, are linked together. And that link is made very clear here. Not just between love love for brother and love for God, but between love for God, really between salvation and obedience. Mm -hmm. Our abiding in him, our abiding in him is our obedience to him. In the passages in 1 John and in John that we read already. We abide in him, then we do what he did. And here he ties the Holy Spirit to that as well. By this we know that we, he abides in us by the spirit whom he gave us. Now, some people foolishly say, oh, see now I talk in tongues, that proves that I'm saved. And if you don't talk in tongues, you're not saved. I've met a few people over the years who were kicked out of churches because they didn't talk in tongues. Uh, that's not what he means here. I think what's he, the focus on the Holy Spirit here is going back to the Old Testament promise of the new covenant. What it means to be born again. We look at this passage often, and I think we need to remember it and bring it to mind here again. Ezekiel 36, 25, and following. Right, the promise I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put in you. I will move your heart of stone from your flesh, give your heart of flesh. Verse 27. <clears throat> I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. What is the connection? If he has put his spirit in us, that will cause us to walk in his statutes and be careful to obey his rules. And so the cause and effect here is God saves us, God gives us his spirit, a new heart and his spirit in us and his spirit in us causes us to have a new life. Second Corinthians 5:17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, the old has passed away. behold, the new has come. We walk with God, and we pass the tests that John has put forward. And the passing of the tests that John has put forward is the evidence that the Holy Spirit is in us, and the, the evidence that the Holy Spirit is in us is then the confidence we can have that we are Christ. We are God's children. So when our hearts are troubled, when they're accusing us, when they condemn us, when we seek to set our troubled hearts to rest, we look first and foremost for evidence of the Holy Spirit in our life. And that evidence is not pretending to speak in tongues or pretending to do fake miracles, but that evidence is living a new life in Christ. Walking as Jesus walked, as John says here in First John. That evidence is passing all of the tests that he has put forward in these first three chapters. Obedience to everything that he has caused, called us to do because we have that new life in Christ given to us through the Holy Spirit. He's given us much instruction here in many tests in First John. To see if we are walking with God, if we are in the faith, to see if we are children of God, to know if we have eternal life. And while simple and profound, these tests really show us the Holy Spirit in our life. Because we could not do those things without God's Spirit and without God's work in our life. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we conclude this section, the first three chapters of John, and we think back upon these tests, tests of love and obedience, tests of doing righteousness and holiness, and goodness and truth, tests of repentance, we know, Lord, that these tests are really hard, that we haven't passed them all well, that sometimes our heart is burdened and convicted and sometimes we have feelings of guilt and struggles with conviction in our heart. But we thank you, Lord, that John has also assured us that if we confess our sins, if we're repentant, we receive forgiveness, that we are cleansed of our wickedness, and that we can draw near to you with confidence as your beloved children, Pray that you would teach us that confidence, encourage our lives and our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.